Welcome to Brain in a Vat. Today we are joined by Spencer Case, uh, who is currently at the University of Wuhan, a place many of you will know quite well. Um, and we're going to be talking about academic freedom. Uh, Spencer, would you like to start with the thought experiment? I would like to ask you to compare two sort of dystopian scenarios we might live in in the, in the near future. Some people live in some of them in the present, you might think. So here's the first one. The first one is to imagine that if anybody says something critical of the president, he or she will be fined $1,000 and sent to jail for one week, okay? That would definitely be a situation we would say speech is not free in this country. Now, I want you to consider a different country. There's no legal penalty for criticizing the president. However, it's a social fact about the society that if you say anything critical about the president, people would, would think you're unpatriotic. People would think that you're probably a bad person. People wouldn't wanna hire you. You might lose friends over this. You might find yourself socially ostracized. Uh, and you just sort of know it's just one of these things you can't say in polite conversation that you have a problem with something the president has said or something the president has done. And so I wanna ask you in what society is speech more free? So I don't know if you've heard the stories coming out of Thailand. Um, someone has just been handed an over 40 year sentence uh, for criticizing the king on social media. Um, I mean, that, that's more than your $1,000 fine, right? Um, you know, that's, that's, that's a hectic prison sentence. Um, yeah, so which, which society would I rather be in? Uh, so now there's three. So there's the one with a 40-year fine, there's the one with $1,000, and there's the one where you get social approbation. Um, I mean, are those the only options? Can, can we not have a third or a fourth where there's, where there's no punishment for, for bad speech? Obviously, I would think that would be preferable to any of those three options. But I raise the point because I want to draw attention to a distinction I make between what I call thin free speech and, and thick free speech. So thin free speech is basically what the First Amendment protects in the United States, roughly. So you have the right to say what you want free of legal penalties subject to very narrow constraints having to do with incitation or slander. And that's basically it. Possibly also maybe sedition in wartime or something, but only in the narrowest of circumstances. But basically you can say what you want with no legal penalty attached to it. So that's free speech in the narrow sense. But I wanna draw your attention to the fact that if you only have free speech in this sense, you don't really have what ma matters most about free speech. You don't really have much to celebrate if it turns out that your reputation will be destroyed, you'll lose all your social connections, you'll lose your place of employment, your whole social future will be destroyed, but you won't go to jail. Now, there aren't that many people who wouldn't be willing to, to go to jail um, to say something they think is true, but they would be willing to lose all of their friends and they would be willing to lose their employment and they would be willing to be defamed and, and, and so on and so forth. So the point is that if you have strong enough social stigma attached to dissent, that does all of the work that a legal penalty would do in terms of suppressing thought, in terms of encouraging stifling deformi uh, conformity, and in terms of 
making people feel like they're not able to say what they want to say. In America, the way that that right to free speech is typically thought of is in a vertical way, an up-down way. So citizens have the right against the state. The other way of thinking about how you might want it to be is horizontally, so that citizens have the right against each other. So that if um, a tech company is infringing upon your rights to free speech or your employer, that your rights are nonetheless violated. Another way of thinking about it is that if you don't believe in the horizontal right, you might think that a culture of free speech is important. So people hold the view that it's important to tolerate ideas that they disagree with. And they sort of imbibe that uh, that notion from Voltaire that, you know, I may disagree with you, but I'll fight to the death for your right to do so. Um, because if we stop um, the culture of free speech, then it's very hard for us to generate new ideas. Now, what's striking to my mind is that universities have sort of typically been the place to generate new ideas and that they're an important place for having controversial discussions. Um, and if you think about a lot of social reform, it comes out of controversial discussions. So for most of human history, the idea of gay marriage was seen as something that was either incomprehensible, the notion that two men could marry each other was just seen as bizarre, or deeply immoral. And through discussions uh, at universities, people's minds changed. And then you had legal ramifications. So South Africa was the fifth country in the world to legalize gay marriage. America followed uh, quite soon afterwards. Um, but if you said, we cannot talk about this topic, it is forbidden. Um, if you silence universities from discussing it or from academics from writing about it, you could never have that social reform. But what we're finding at the moment is that universities, to my mind, appear to be the place where it's the hardest to have conversations, that there are certain kinds of lines that if you cross, you will be cancelled. Uh, you will be you know, uh, treated beyond the pale. Well, I agree with you in part. I, here's the part I agree with. I think I would understand academic freedom, properly understood, to be thick free speech, the proper kind of thick free speech that you would want to have in a university setting. One thing I think that is unsatisfying about the way academic freedom is often going to be understood is that it sort of is based on this notion of the, the myth of the university as the university is the center of society's pursuit of truth. This is where our new ideas come from. Question that from two different angles. You can question it from the angle of, aren't there a bunch of other institutions in society that are also inquiring, also producing truth, or at least claim to? I mean, off the top of my head, you've got think tanks and uh, journalism outlets and publishers of nonfiction books and museums and religious institutions claim to be disseminating truth of a certain kind, and I could go on. Um, so I don't think that the university has any kind of um, monopoly on truth. And I've also read some fairly pessimistic things like thinking Brian Kaplan's book, The Case Against Education and the, the book by um, Jason Brennan and I think Phil Magnus, Cracks in the Ivory Tower, both of which made me really question the extent to which the university is playing an important role, getting at the truth, disseminating truth to students. I want to define academic freedom in such a way that it doesn't presuppose a very strong, you know, implausible notion of what the university in fact does and what its role in society actually is. So I just think that my academic freedom is simply my thick freedom of speech, so as I, as I would call it, 
I don't think that my freedom to write and, and publish and be free from extreme forms of social censure is significantly different than like James Damore's at Google or even Colin Kaepernick's or I, I just think I don't see myself as having an exceptional form of freedom in virtue of being part of the university. I think that's the wrong way to think of it. So I'm curious about um, why academic freedom and general freedom of speech is curtailed. Um, I mean, if, if one says, oh, people should be free to say what they want to say, people should be free to explore um, the academic issues that they want to explore, that has intuitive appeal, immediate intuitive appeal. I think we can all agree that that is a good thing. But obviously, there's some reason why this value is being curtailed, and it, it's buffing up against other values. Um, and and one of those values maybe is um, is in, is intolerance. People cannot stand intolerance. And if someone says or explores an idea that is perceived by others as intolerant, um, they they find that unacceptable. And so they would prefer to curtail that person's speech or that person's academic freedom so that um, there is greater tolerance and less intolerance in society. So when we, when we have um, a value like free speech, which we all agree is valuable, um, how, do we, how, do we, how do we balance it against other values that we also think are important, like tolerance? Censorship is the strongest human instinct. Sex is a distant second. We, of course, want to suppress views that we don't like. It's easy to explain that. It's harder to explain, you know, how it is that we maintain a, a culture of free speech given those realities. And I have to say, things start to get tricky when you concede that when you're talking about free speech, it's not just a matter of freedom from the law, but freedom from certain forms of social pressure. Because it would be nice, and I used to think of it this way, that we have our first order like issues. We disagree about abortion and tax cuts or, or whatever, name your first order issues, but we should all agree that people should be free to express their views regardless of their first order positions. But now I'm starting to think that you can't make a neat separation of like the first order ethical issues and then like the freedom of speech sort of meta issue. And that's especially true when you're thinking about free speech in terms of social sanctions that are non-legal because you can be basically a total libertarian when it comes to free speech of the kind that is legal you know freedom from legal sanction that's easy to be at least at least it's consistent it's easy to see how you can be that consistently but it's hard to see what an absolutist would be when it comes to freedom from social sanction some people who push back against conservatives and others who worry about cancel culture will say is, well, surely there should be some accountability for, your, for what you say and your actions. And uh, surely we don't want there to be no social punishment for any, what anyone says, right? Like if you are wearing a swastika armband and sh shouting Nazi slogans, you can't say like, oh, I wasn't invited to the Hanukkah party. No fair, I'm being subject to social sanction. If somebody's first order ethical position is that certain speech acts are just inherently harmful and certain viewpoints are just evil just to express, that is their first order viewpoint, 
then it's going to be difficult to argue that person into some sort of tolerance of allowing people to express that view without just getting them to change their mind about, about the first order issue. So it seems like there are different kinds of speech um, and we might want to have different rules about how we address them. So there's, there are words that are hurtful. So if, if you use a, um, a, a racial epithet against someone, it's hurtful. That's quite different from speech which incites. So if you call upon an angry mob to go and perform a violent action, you know, there is the threat that a physical harm will occur, not merely an emotional or mental harm. And so, you know, America probably has some of the greatest free speech protections in terms of your protections against the state um, and cuts off that line there. Whereas other jurisdictions have hate speech laws that, you know, themselves span a wide variety of different kinds of laws. So some will prohibit, um, as I say, merely hurtful speech, others will want there to be some kind of a call to action. What's interesting about academia, though, is that it's not just ordinary kinds of speech, there's certain kinds of research that people are engaged in. Um, and it seems to be that people have been uh, dismissed from their positions for engaging in that research. And I'd like to dwell a bit on that. So there are certain topics that I think uh, were, were weren't in the mainstream, weren't the kind of things that people felt strongly about that have become very deeply held. So issues around sex and gender, for example, seem to have had a big stranglehold on universities in America and the UK. And those that make the claim that um, there are only two sexes um, or that um, uh, that you can't proclaim your sex through, through mere identification, um, a view which was probably pretty widely held and probably still is quite widely held, are severely shunned in academia. Um, the other huge hot topic, of course, is any talk about a connection between race and IQ. And those that have even skirted on the margins of topics like that um, have been physically assaulted on campuses um, or um, you know have had their, their, their papers retracted. Um, are these areas where, where universities just say, I'm sorry, we don't do that kind of research here. And if anyone does that, uh, you will be fired and or we definitely won't hire anyone on that basis. Or do you want some kind of free inquiry? Um, I mean, for example, on the issue of um, whether children should be free to self-identify as a different sex and engage in uh, hormone replacement therapy, um, there's been a slight pushback in the UK. So there's a recent case of um, someone who was uh, born a young girl, uh, identified as a boy, went through um, puberty blockers, um, and then later regretted it and uh, sued and said, you know, I did this at the age of 13. Uh, I wasn't an agent. Um, the government did nothing to sort of advise me of the long-term consequences of this. I'm now rendered infertile. And, uh, and this shouldn't happen to other children. This is a form of child abuse. And so there's been a pushback on that front. And the worry that is that if you stop having certain kinds of conversations, it's impossible to do this reflective equilibrium where you can sort of see what the consequences are of some actions and then maybe, you know, realize you've gone too far in one direction and move in the other direction. Well, I think it might be better for universities to just say, we're not going to have any research on those topics and then stick to that, than to proclaim that they support open inquiry into those topics when they don't. I mean, is the charge then that it's uh, it's a hypocrisy uh, that's at stake? There are some universities who've taken a strong line. So, you know, Chicago, for example, has a set of principles which says, you know, uh, 
free speech is a fundamental value at our university and we are not here to sort of create a safe space or protect you from dangerous ideas the purpose of coming to a university is to you know engage with things that you're going to disagree with um and they uphold those principles now it might be bad uh if you have a university that proclaims that and doesn't uphold it uh, but at least you have a standard that you can hold them accountable to because they've proclaimed something well words are cheap and even at the university of chicago I just read something, I think it was the Wall Street Journal last week about an economist who um, got into some kind of cancel culture trouble. Pretty much every university president has made lip service to freedom of speech at some point. You know, of course, my view is people should be able to pursue these things in an unfettered way. I don't think you really can get around certain controversies by suppressing them, like the, the bump in the rug is, is still going to be there. And, and it's going to get worse if you try to suppress it. I don't know what to think about like this race IQ stuff. I've not looked into it deeply. It does make me uncomfortable. I can't trust academics to be honest with me about this. Like if there were some really compelling evidence that someone had just discovered like last week or something that definitively proved that Charles Murray was correct in the, in the bell curve and, and the book with Richard Herdstein, I don't expect that I would hear about it, you know? And, and just because of that counterfactual, if it turns out that, you know, all of these social scientists come out and say, it turns out it's all environmental causes. We're sure of that now. Um, I don't know if I could believe them because I don't know that I could trust them if the data came out another way. So I think if you suppress certain viewpoints, it turns out like the whole area is muddied. It's not just like this one little thing, anything attached to it, anything adjacent to it that might some have some bearing on it is going to become suspect. I would think if you were going to make a case for academic research being sanctioned, like an, like an actual hard case, this is the hard case. The hard case is somebody like Stephen Hawking coming out and saying, I don't trust vaccinations. Now that, like the, the connection between like race research and, you know, racist violence is pretty tenuous. Like it would be really hard to demonstrate that a particular paper led to a particular outcome, even if somebody said that it did, you know, but if you had, if you had a scientist like that come out and say, no, vaccines are, are BS, especially the COVID vaccine. It's a conspiracy. It's a globalist conspiracy. Like you can guarantee thousands of people would die as a result from that. That's the hard case. But, but think about that. Do you really want journals have a policy of suppressing any kind of, any kind of paper that suggests, well, maybe, maybe, we, maybe there are some side effects to these vaccines. Maybe there are risks that we haven't considered. You know, the, if, if that, they started doing a policy of that, you'd end, up, we, you'd end up polluting the whole field. You know, we'd end up making the whole field reliable. If you're willing to stand by free speech in academic research in the vaccination case, if people should be allowed to publish papers that cast doubt on the efficacy of vaccines, and of course, like thoroughly vetted, uh, peer-reviewed all of that, 
then I think the race stuff, the gender stuff is all pretty easy compared to that case. I mean, it's a lovely example. And it seems to me that the traditional way of dealing with a paper like that is instead of saying, you said something we don't like, um, and this may encourage people not to take a vaccine and people will die, is you engage with the content of the arguments and you say you're wrong for X, Y, Z reasons. And these are the fundamental errors. Um, and I think we've sort of wound up in a situation where that's not the approach to controversial papers in academia. Um, you know, there, there are many people who've written papers and instead of someone writing a counter paper to say, you know, here are the holes um, or here's what you could do to fix your position, the, the move is to say this paper should be unpublished. So, for example, Rebecca Tuval's paper on uh, transracialism and transgenderism, there was a call from hundreds of academics um, for Hypatia to retract. Ultimately, they, they didn't. Um, but there were calls for her to be fired from her university or someone like uh, Bruce Gilley, who wrote an argument in favor of colonialism. Instead of people rebutting the arguments in the paper, the calls were for him to be um, fired from his university. And I think the journal that published this paper um, almost collapsed. Um, I think many people resigned um, because it had been been published. Um, and that seems like, as you say, there's, it's not just a problem with those particular issues. It's a problem with the academic process. So if you are meant to see academia as a trusted source, you, you want to know that the system works, that people are free to articulate an idea, and that idea might be wrong, and other people who are experts in that field can explain to you why it is wrong, instead of just a mere, that's an unacceptable view, you're fired. There might be a better way though, Mark. Um, I think I think there might be some false equivalencies happening here. So let's say, for example, in the case that Spencer's raised with um, Stephen Hawking type figure standing up and saying, you know, vac vaccines are rubbish. Um, that probably shouldn't get through the peer review process unless there's good evidence backing up his claims. Um, if there's not good evidence backing up his claims, then you don't want to publish it at all, not because, not because it's a problematic view, but because there's not good evidence supporting his claim. But if there is good evidence supporting his claim, um, then you want it published, right? And you want to engage in that process. So you might, you might think of the peer review process as providing some sort of buffer against um, obviously false, obviously damaging views. Yeah, of course, the caveat with that is that you trust the peer review process. In other words, that those engaged are using those ordinary principles of, is there good evidence? Does this meet our sort of bar as opposed to, um, are we going to be indicted for allowing this um, bad view to be exposed, even if the evidence is very good? So if you have some scientist who's like an Elon Musk type figure on social media or something, that's one case. And if you have a minority view paper that gets through the peer review process, that's another. And it's academic freedom per se would pertain to the second of those things. Uh, but freedom of speech more broadly would, would pertain to both of them. Nobody will say, I'm in favor of suppressing research that supports conclusions I don't like. Nobody says that. They say, oh, all of the research I want to suppress just happens to be bad. And I think Oftentimes they exaggerate the flaws of the research they don't like and minimize the flaws of the research that supports conclusions they like. Um, you know, that's just confirmation bias. It's the most confirmed thing in the world.
So if I understand correctly, what you're saying is there's different levels of censorship of free speech. So on the one level, you have government stepping in and saying, making official rules, saying you may not speak about X, Y, or Z, you'll be fined or imprisoned, et cetera. Then you've got social approbation. So even if government allows you to say certain things without, without fining you, um, you might have society stepping in and um, causing such a ruckus that you lose your job, you lose your friends, you lose your, your social standing. And, and that also censors free speech. And, and, and you're, you're trying, if I understand correctly, trying to argue for a world where we have neither of those, where people are able to, um, to speak freely without either kind of censorship you do give certain kind of counter examples. So, so the counter example of, you know, the, the Nazi that stands up and, and, and screams anti-Semitic sentiments and then, um, you know, doesn't get invited to Shabbos dinner. Um, that, that's perhaps uh, an interesting type of counter example. But on the main, you would like a world where people are able to pursue what they want to pursue without either type of censorship. But now here's my problem. In saying there should not be social approbation, is there not some sort of contradiction there? So the contradiction is, I want to censor people from censoring me. So I want to censor their aggravation and their aggression uh, in response to my views. If I have thick freedom of speech, why don't I have the free freedom to say, screw you, you're a racist and, and that sort of thing. And I don't wanna be your friend anymore or whatever else. Um, so that's true. We would be living in a better, healthier society if people engaged in that kind of thing less, right? Um, you have your freedom of association. You have your freedom of speech. That includes a freedom, the freedom to say, I'm not a good person and to dissociate with me. But I think it, we would both be better off, we'd all be better off collectively if people exercised those sorts of rights sparingly, that people made an effort to maintain relationships with people who don't agree with them on certain issues, that we recognize some degree of ambiguity. And I think it's a disaster for society if you've got different camps of people with vastly different views who have, like, if you disagree with me on any one of these six things, you're unfriended on social media, we're not hanging out anymore, I won't say another good word about you ever. Whatever value you think there is to freedom of speech in the thin sense, it's not of much value if you have too many social constraints preventing the exercise of it. We can act in accordance with our rights, but that's you want virtue sitting on top of those rights. And there is a virtue in being able to um, disagree with people politely uh, and being able to create a space where we can hold different views and not sever our friendships and not disassociate, even if it is within our rights to do so. Um, you know, you could say no one has a right to be my friend. Um, but when things get tough, um, if I just remove the friendship, you might think I've acted in a, in a vice-like manner and that I've done something wrong. And Mull warns against this in On Liberty, where he says, you know, the tyranny of the state is very dangerous, but the tyranny of the crowd can be even more so. The idea that people act out with such social opprobrium that people are just terrified of saying anything um, that could be deemed controversial um, because it'll risk their friendships, their employment, etc. Part of what we try and do on our show is 
have people on so we can disagree with them. As philosophers, we love disagreeing with people. It's a way that we bond with each other. You know, we'll disagree really for the fun of it. Um, and I wonder if the kinds of conversations that traditionally were in the hallowed halls of academia are now moving to other places, partly because it's hard to have the conversations in academia and partly because it's become much easier to have these kinds of conversations. Now, you run your own podcast, um, Microdigressions, and I gather you've managed to have some fabulous conversations with your guests. Uh, how do you find that space uh, in comparison to you know, being at a university? You know, I've not been one to self-censor very much, um, even at the university, um, where I don't think what I'm going to be, what I'm going to say is all that well received. Um, I guess I'm stubborn in that way. I tend not to have a difficult time engaging somebody who's willing to engage me on any number of topics uh, with any really almost any amount of, of disagreement, I can at least clarify what are the lines between, um, you know, what I, uh, what I think and what you think. And, you know, it's actually sort of surprising to see what, com what conversations are, are possible, what productive conversations are even possible. I don't know if, you're, if either of you are familiar with um, Daryl Davis. He is a uh, black man and a musician in the U.S. who Start, start going to like Klan rallies and having conversations with um, white supremacists. He's got a, 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 there's a documentary about him on PBS called Accidental Courtesy. Actually, Justin Califf turned me on to it. There's power to actually sitting down and reasoning with someone. In a real sense, we've lost faith in reason. It's the thought that if you're a racist, you know, no amount, no amount of reasoning could ever possibly save you. You know, you're a repugnant person and you need to be, you know, kept in a, in a, in a kind of social quarantine so that you don't infect anybody else. It just seems to me that the people who are, I don't know, in favor of cancel culture, or at least not nearly as concerned about it as I am, just don't seem to have much faith in the ability of reason to move people. I, I really liked something that Mark said that uh, we disagree with people on the show just for the heck of it. Um, so I, my, I've been firing off objections at you, but I'm actually a free speech absolutist. So I, I think that, you know, we should, we should be allowed complete uh, free speech, at least in the legal sense, that there should be no legal um, restraints on what anyone says. Um, and I'm a bit more extreme than Mark is. So I think even calls to violence should have no legal ramifications um, just because I'm an anarchist and I don't think the state should, should be policing anything, never mind free speech. Um, but, but yeah, we, and yet we get into these discussions, right? So we can still fire off, fire off objections at each other and we can adopt positions and that seems very, very valuable. Um, and, and yeah, I, th I think that the project that you're engaged in is in improving that space. Um, but I just wanna, I just wanna push a point, um, uh, you know, a point against what you said earlier. Um, and, and the point is this, the point is you're saying, okay, compare two worlds. World one, we don't have social approbation when people, um, when people utter things that other people don't like. So, um, you know, you have a world where, where, where ideas can be debated properly. Um, 
And then world two, which is more like our world where there is social approbation when people say things that other people don't like and they can lose their jobs and lose their social standing. And you're saying world one is better than world two, right? World one where people are able to engage in conversation is better than world two. Um, but, but is that the extent of what you're saying? Are you saying world one's better than world two or are you saying we should actively pursue transforming world two into world one? We should actively pursue getting people to stop stopping others from, from speaking in certain ways. Um, and, and if that's what you're saying, then it seems like you're just collapsing back into this problem you know, of, of censoring people. So are you, are you, are you purely remarking on another possible world or are you saying we need to take active steps to change things? I would say the latter. I want to say the stronger thing, but I'm not saying anyone who supports cancel culture, call their employer and get them fired. That would be like, absolutely. I don't know about contradictory, but it would be apparently an, an incoherent principle I'd be acting on. So I'm not saying that I'm just saying do less of that kind of thing. And, and strive to engage people and strive to demonstrate the efficacy of reason through your own example. So you, you, you're saying to them that there is a better way of doing things than the way that they're doing now. So you'll, you'll go to this person who is supporting cancel culture, who's waving a placard and stopping Jordan Peterson from standing up on that stage and giving his speech, right? And you'll go to that person and say, look, there is a better way uh, to achieve the kind of world you want to achieve than to hold up this placard and scream scream uh, slogans um, rather than letting the crowd hear Jordan Peterson speak. But that person won't necessarily listen to you. In fact, they, they very likely won't listen to you. At, what, at, at that point, what happens? Do you then just stop? Do you just stop, stop engaging that person? Or do you want to push for something greater? Do you want to push for some sort of institutional bans on cancel culture? I don't expect every black person in the U.S. to be a Daryl Davis. Like, of course, it's reasonable to just want to avoid those people who hate you. Um, but I'm glad that there is at least one person like that out there. And I would be happy for there to be more, you know, conservative uh, counterparts to him. Somebody who would be willing to talk to somebody at an Antifa rally. I'm not necessarily saying that this is a universal obligation, but if you find that you you have that kind of metal, maybe you should consider doing that. Maybe you should just keep that in mind as a, as a way to behave. But at a very minimum, uh, don't go along with it. Uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn said, live not by lies. And going along with it isn't necessarily just, uh, you know, drumming up one of these campaigns or denouncing somebody in a struggle session or something, but don't sign petitions you don't believe in. Don't um, just sit there. If you hear somebody is being sort of uh, defamed unfairly, uh, be brave, say things that you know are not going to be popular among certain circles, stick your neck out a bit. There've been a lot of tenured professors in the US who have just sort of seen this thing grow and grow and, and now they're retiring and now they're, now they're um, saying a few things. And I just think, you know, where were you guys 15 years ago? There, there are various ways of resisting this kind of culture. And I'm not necessarily saying that you should do any one of them. Maybe it is 
actually going out and engaging the person who, who's engaged in this. Um, I, I signed the petition defending Kathleen Stock, um, who was, uh, who's been subject to some of this on account of her views on gender. Some people will say, oh, well, you're, um, you think the initial petition was stupid, but now you're signing another petition. And I think I, I see a difference between the offensive and the defensive there. One of the main purposes of the offensive ones is to give, give people a sense that they're isolated and, and they're all alone and look at this huge long na names of people who, list of names of people who think you're terrible and don't deserve honors and that sort of thing. And so against that, I think it's useful to sign petitions that, that counteract the first kind of petition and to insist on the difference of saying, look, just saying that I don't think she should be subject to that kind of campaign doesn't mean I agree with every, everything she says or even most of it or even any of it, really. I signed that petition as well. And when I was asked to, I have to say that I, I took pause. I first of all wondered, well, I need to go and read up all about the facts um, and decide you know, whether her free speech rights really are being, being attacked and whether this is a threat to academia. I ultimately decided that it was, that as you point out, there's something quite callous and frightening about hundreds of academics uh, joining a pylon to uh, denounce you. Um, but you know, I'm in South Africa, I'm, I'm not an academic, and I still felt some level of terror of, if what if I'm the only guy who signs this, signs this counter protest? And I think I'm very glad that I did, and I think it's important to sort of send a pushback signal. Um, and as you say, it's, it's partly about embracing virtues like courage, um, that just having someone say, hold on a second, this isn't okay, and dissenting, uh, and dissenting in the face of a lot of people who aren't going to like it when you dissent, will often give other people that sort of impetus to say, well, if you stood up, then I'll stand up too. Um, and as you say, there's something odd that goes on with these petitions. There was a, an experiment done with a, a group of um, academic psychologists where they asked them something like, do you believe that um, there are only two sexes? And they all said no. And then they were asked, why did you say no? And they said, well, I don't actually believe it, but I'm pretty sure that all of my colleagues believe it and I don't want to say the wrong thing. And everyone answered this way. So you had a situation where no one believed the thing, but they all believed that the others believed it and that there would be a punishment for not going along with it. Um, and there's something incredible about the power of vocal minorities that are able to sort of generate an idea that this is a mass movement, that everybody needs to get on board. This is about social justice. Um, you know, you can harness your, your uh, army of Twitter bots or uh, angry students um, and people sort of say, well, we, we better abide. I guess times are changing. I, I don't want to be the one in the minority when in fact it's not the case. It's sort of, you know, motivated by fear. This is one of the creepiest aspects about this is the kind of silence where you know there are people who disagree who are not speaking up. Um, I wanna mention two other studies that you're probably aware of. One is the you know Solomon Ashes conformity experiments. There were like lines that one was this long, one's this long, one's this long. And it's like, it's obvious that like, which one was longer. They, they, the subjects were told this is a vision test, but then they were in a room with a bunch of um, confederates of the experimenter 
giving the wrong answer and they had cameras and they could see these people were distressed and um, most of the time they would go along with it. And I think there was, a, there was some debate about, do they really believe it or they, do they just say they believed it? But there was some evidence that no, they really did think so. They did a variation of that experiment where just one of the Confederate experimenters was saying the obviously right answer, like, no, no, it's, it's obviously, what are you guys talking about? And that just shattered it. There was no more effect. It only took one dissenter. And I think that's probably how it is with political and, and social views too. Like if there's even one person that says like, no, I, I don't find those arguments compelling. You know, I think everyone is going to have pause. And I just would like ask you to just think like, have you had an, an encounter with like, you were given pause about a view just because you heard that somebody that you respected had it. You don't know what the argument is. You just know that they took the other position. And then you think, hmm, am I, am I missing something here? Should I, should I rethink my position? Or your, your confidence in the position lowers a little bit. By the way, I was also approached to sign that petition, the stock petition, and I did not. Um, and the reason is because, not because I, I think that, that the petition is false or that there's a problem, um, in what the petition stated, but because I think the problem here is groupiness. The, the, the initial problem is that this group of academics stood up and said, well, what Stock said was wrong and, and, and her views need to be withdrawn, she needs to be censored. Um, but there's an equal problem, maybe not quite as bad, but there's a problem with people standing up and saying, we all have the very same view that the people who censored Stock are wrong. And that to me is a problem. It's, it's, it's more of the same, you know, it's, it's tit for tat. And I think what we need to be doing is stopping this groupiness of this apparent um, homogeneity of people's positions saying, oh, we all believe the same thing. We all believe exactly the same propositions in relation to what Stock said. Well, no, no, we don't. The people who signed that petition believe it for various reasons. And the people, I bet you if I were to grill you and Mark on why you, why you signed your petition, they will not be the same reasons. You'll have different motivations for signing that petition. I think we need to stop petitions. That's, that's the problem. We need to stop people collaborating in apparent homogeneity of thought and realizing that there's massive gradations in, in what people believe. And so as a result of that, we need to stop you know, this, this farce of standing up all together on one view. Groupiness is too coarse grained, you know, to describe what's going on here. If one side will organize and no one will organize against them because they're opposed to groupthink or whatever, that's unilateral disarmament. Why can't you have a whole bunch of individuals saying, I just don't support um, this pylon, you know, instead of saying, well, I don't support this pylon and academic freedom is important and we all agree on exactly what academic freedom is and we all agree on why it's important. Once you start you know, layering these views one on top of the other, that's when it starts to appear to me exactly like the original petition, um, just you know, inverted views. Um, why, not, why, not, why not have social approbation against group social approbation? I think there's a couple of ways of thinking about this. The one is Spencer's view in that, in other words, you're just surrendering the battle, um, which takes the notion that it is a battle. In other words, you do have different sides who care about different things. Um, the other one is to think about 
this principle in, in the case of appellate judges. So you often have a situation where you've got five judges looking at a case and they all agree what the outcome should be. So-and-so should be convicted, let's say. But they don't agree about the reasons for the conviction. They have their own set of unique principles at play, particular laws they would like to rely on, uh, particular moral precepts. But they can agree on the fundamental thing, which is this guy's guilty and should be convicted. And we might think that that's what's going on in the petition case. So I'm pretty sure that Spencer and I did sign it for different reasons. But we can say the idea of uh, standing up against the pylon is the one fundamental thing we do care about. And we think that that's, you know, um, a society which piles on academics for bad reasons uh, is something worth resisting, even if we have a whole range of other kinds of motivations behind it. If you had to go and ask people who signed both sets of petitions and you ask them, why did you sign? Some of them will just say, well, my friends were doing it. Um, and, you know, I don't really have the time to kind of investigate it, but I trust these authority figures and, you know, I'll sort of do some deferring. So if therefore it's, well, adding my name adds some kind of weight. Um, and I think the principle that you're trying to point out is you want people to go through an individual process of assessing whether this is something that they agree with. There's also a sense that you've got an asymmetric warfare. It's hard to fight against the, the mob who's very happy to think in collective terms uh, if you don't believe in those principles. And so I think, um, let's say classical liberals and conservatives often find themselves in this, uh, this, this hard situation where they want to stand up against the mob, uh, but they don't want to stand together because we don't like being part of a mob. Well, this is a dilemma, right? So, so you know, the, the thing that you're trying to fight against is a form of collectivism, but you're using collectivism to fight against it. And, and that, you know, has inherent problems. But as you say, if you don't use a collectivist way of fighting against it, it just may not be effective. Um, so they might, they might just win by default. That's, that's the problem I have. Generally not to, good to think of anything going on in society as a social equivalent of war because it's a way of telling people swallow your qualms and get on board here. We're gonna to have to break a few eggs for the greater good. And that is, is, is usually a suspect thing. Well, imagine a world where there's no groupiness, right? Uh, you know, where people approach these issues individually, they think about them and they don't pile on each other. Now, you know, compare that world with the world we have now, and that world's better. And I say, well, that's the world you need to pursue. And then, of course, your objection is going to be, but, but how would you pursue that? Well, the best way to pursue that is to pile on the pile-ons, you know, to, to pile on against the pile-ons. But as soon as you say that, your original argument for, for you know, this very nuanced, fine-grained individual approach to social approbation falls flat, you know, because that's what I'm suggesting here. I'm suggesting when there's a pylon, you approach them individually and you try to reason, which is exactly your approach, you know, with the KKK. So the KKK is standing up there or the cancel culturists are standing up there. Individual goes and has an argument with them, has a discussion with them. And I'm suggesting the same. I'm suggesting that, you know, this, this pile on the pile of honors is, 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 no, is no better than having a cancel culture against cancel culture. Thank <laughs> you.